Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larison, as we observe in real time today the machinations of the Washington Military Industrial Complex. We will be talking to Sarah Leah Whitson, a powerhouse human rights lawyer and executive director for the Democracy for the Arab World Now. But first, let's check in on the latest in Ukraine. Tuesday night, Dan, President Biden gave a real stem winder of a State of the Union speech in which he laid down the good old good versus evil conception, which was perfected, as we know, in this century by George W. Bush in regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right at the very beginning of his remarks, he said, and I'm quoting, six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met a wall of strength he never imagined. And the battle between democracy and autocracy, democracies are rising to the moment and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security, end quote. Given the mood in the American press and across social media and among his own party on Capitol Hill, this approach should more than work for him. It suggests that the U.S. is again leading the international rules-based order and that all good democracies are behind us and that authoritarianism is on the run. It allows him to cut a historic figure like Churchill and say America is again on the right side of history. To my mind, though, this is dangerous. It wipes away any complexity or nuance and is needlessly hostile at a time when we should be using our capital as a world leader to de-escalate, not escalate the conflict in Ukraine. It suggests our end game is regime change. And, and why not? If Putin is truly evil, how could he possibly remain in office? As we've talked about before, regime change doesn't work. And any effort at it would put Ukraine in a situation in which it has to endure years of bloody conflict and economic depression. Are we really willing to risk that, Dan? Have we learned anything over the last 20 years? Well, I I would like to think we've learned a few things. I I mean, at least some parts of of the foreign policy community must have learned something, I would hope. But I I think we have seen uh, a lot of people falling back into old patterns of of thinking in terms of regime change and thinking in terms of uh, trying to use some sort of military option or, or, or grasping at military options uh, that, that aren't really available. And so we, we've seen a lot of this rhetoric about uh, regime change and how essentially there will, you know, I think Carl Bildt, the, the former Swedish foreign minister said, uh, there will be no peace in Europe uh, until there is regime change in Russia, uh, in which case uh, they're, they're either won't be peace, uh, or there will be uh, the pursuit of regime change, which I think is is potentially uh, dangerous because it will feed into Russia's own insecurities about uh, attempts at trying to overthrow their government, uh, which are, which are at the root of this entire crisis. The the, the fear that the West is out to get uh, the Russian government and to bring it down, and and if the more uh, that government policy seems to to feed into that and to encourage that impression that that's what we're after, uh, it will make it virtually impossible to end the war. Uh, and it, it raises the risks of uh, further escalation where the war will either intensify in Ukraine or it could potentially widen beyond it. And so we, we don't want to, to give them the impression that that is what we're after. What we should be after, as you said, is de-escalation, uh, a ceasefire, an end to the war, 
and, and the Russian withdrawal. Um, uh, speaking about the invasion, I, I should acknowledge that I, I was really wrong about uh, the prospect of invasion uh, for, for many months. I was a skeptic. Uh, it seemed uh, preposterous, really, that this is what they would try to do, because as many troops as they had, they simply didn't have enough to carry out the kind of mission uh, that they would need uh, to carry out to achieve their their very well, apparently very expansive political goals. And so it, it didn't make any sense to me how they would even attempt this because the costs would be so staggering for them. And as we're seeing now in just the first week, the costs have been very staggering for them. Uh, what I the, the only way I can make sense of it is that it seems as if uh, Putin thought that he was going to just show up and the Ukrainian government was going to collapse at the first push. Uh, and he assumed that there would be no resistance, which is a... a, a seems an impossibly stupid assumption to make, but it's one that interventionists make all the time. Uh, when they, they look at another country and they think, oh, this government is illegitimate, it will crumble like a house of cards uh, and will simply sweep in and be welcomed. And I, it seems like based on their planning or lack of planning, uh, that's what they seem to think was going to happen. And, and we know, or we, we were gathering evidence now from news reports and, and interviews with captured soldiers that suggests that they think uh, that, the, that, the, that the, the leadership in Moscow didn't tell their own forces what they were about to do. They didn't prepare them for this at all. And so they were, I think they were deliberately keeping it under wraps to maintain this illusion that there would be no invasion. But uh, as, a, as a result of that, they've been completely unprepared to right. actually carry out the invasion. And now they're running into very stiff resistance, which is what they should have expected all along. And so it's, you know, again, I, I got it completely wrong. Uh, well, I mean, I, I and I've heard uh, similar um, statements, uh, you know, uh, of apology or at least an acknowledgement of uh, analysis that had it turned out to be wrong. But, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. Um, I feel like in particular, I can speak for you because, you know, we're friends. Um, I've been watching and editing your writing. We're on the show together. You know, I think that you were pretty clear the entire time uh, that our actions during this period were provoking. And, you know, when you go through weeks and weeks of uh, meetings that misfire or uh, we have these high-level meetings and nothing really happens in them. And then a high-level official like Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan immediately seeming to rush to a camera so they could say, oh, yeah, we had a talk, but we're, we're reminded our Russian counterpart that they need they need to back down. They need to know that we mean business. They need to know that we're not budging on a NATO uh, red line or X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, at the same point, I'm not so sure that our um, inability, and I say our meaning the, the Washington establishment or the or official Washington, inability to get to a table and to hammer out agreements and to make appropriate compromise and get, you know, uh, compromise from the other side didn't lend itself to this invasion. I I have yet, and I'm sure we won't know until we, we, we read the historical accounts, we won't know whether how long this actual invasion, the way it rolled out, was in the works all along. 
and how much had been provoked by the inability for the diplomatic path to work. So I, I, I appreciate, you know, you kind of taking, you know, ownership of some of your analysis, but I don't think it was, it's not that it was wrong. It's just that, you know, we couldn't anticipate how the back and forth would have unfolded um, in real time. Right. Well, and I, and I think, I mean, there, I think there was, there might have been an opening for a diplomatic solution, um, at least maybe last year, maybe once we got into the new year, things were already moving uh, in, in the wrong direction and it wasn't salvageable at that point. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, I noticed, but one, one thing that a lot of invasion skeptics had uh, in common uh, in doubting that it would happen is that we, we looked at the, the past record of how Russia had used force outside of its borders before. And a massive invasion of Ukraine didn't fit that pattern. Right. Because in general, the Russian government had been, when they did intervene, they, they did so in a limited fashion. So where the costs would be manageable, would be limited uh, and low. Uh, and because they didn't want to take a lot of casualties uh, because that's unpopular at home for obvious reasons. It's always unpopular at home. Uh, and they, they didn't want to uh, gamble too much on military interventions because, of course, they can go sideways, as, as they now are, as it now is happening uh, in Ukraine today. So it, based on what we had seen the Russian government doing over the last 15, 20 years, it, it seemed, uh, as I said before, preposterous that they would embark on something as uh, risky, as ambitious, uh, as, as costly as what they're now doing, because it, it's, it, it's baffling, really, that they, they think that they can succeed in it. Uh, they're already taking uh, fairly high casualties, depending on whose count you believe. It's either in the hundreds or in many thousands, and that's just within one week. Uh, and that's, uh, for a modern military, that's a, a staggering uh, cost in itself. To say nothing of the loss of material, uh, to, and plus troops that are surrendering, troops that are uh, either mutinying or, or simply giving up the fight, uh, they have, I think, they've done tremendous damage to their own military by taking them on this misadventure, uh, this illegal war, uh, that a lot of these troops have no desire to fight, right. and so you you see them, and it, it's actually quite a a striking thing to see how the, the troops in the, in the Russian army don't bear any ill will towards the Ukrainian people. They don't want to fight the Ukrainian people. And they it's had sad. been told, right. And they had, they had been told they'd been fed this line of garbage about how they were supposedly liberating them. And, uh, and that's how it was sold to them. And so when they encounter intense Ukrainian resistance from people who don't want their so-called liberation, uh, they, realize suddenly that they've been led down the garden path, so to speak. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's a, a tragedy for both countries, and it's uh, it's it's very it's regrettable that it's come to this. I you know I, I'd like to think that there was a way to to head it off, um, but it, you know it's possible uh, Putin was operating on such bad information or with such a, a warped view of the likely consequences yeah. that. He, he may have been intending to gamble this way uh, for a long time. Yeah, so we, I, won't, you know, I don't, we won't know. I don't know. Um, 
But I, I think what we have to look to now is, is to try to find some kind of compromise that can bring the war to an end uh, sooner rather than later, because we're, we're starting to see uh, you know, attacks on civilian targets. We're seeing uh, massive damage to Ukrainian cities, uh, which will only intensify and get worse the longer this goes on. And so I, you know, I sincerely hope that through through anyone's mediation, whether it's China's mediation or or Israel's or any any country that can actually speak to both countries uh, credibly, uh, that they can present uh, uh, some kind of truce and uh, a compromise that will lead uh, to a, a swift end to this war before it, it gets uh, completely out of control. And I agree with you completely. What I'm what I am concerned about, and maybe because I spend way too much time on social media is that there is a whole contingent of people, both on the left and the right, who seem to want to dig in for the long haul. And, and, and mind you, those are not the people who are in imminent danger right now. They're, they are tweeting and writing from the safety of their own Barca Lounge in their uh, Washington, New York City homes. And they don't seem to want to talk about the diplomatic solution. They want to talk zero sum, meaning Putin must go. Um, this has to, I mean, they're talking about this in apocalyptic terms almost, which it, 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 which also um, reminds me of another thing that, that's been bothering me all week is that there is this idea that folks like you and I have been wrong all along, that this wasn't about NATO expansion. This wasn't about driving Putin into a corner over the last 20 years. Uh, this this wasn't about these the realist conceptions that when um, you encroach upon you know a great power's uh, sphere of influence you have to expect them to you know um, react. That's all out the window now. So all of these interventionist types on the both the left and right are saying, "See, you guys were wrong all along. This guy is a psycho. He's an authoritarian." He wants to recreate the the Soviet Union. He is he is not you know he he is he's evil incarnate. And if we had listened to you realists all along and you restrainers all along, um, you know you, you'll you'll be you'll you'll be appeasing every um, autocrat across the globe as they start running into to every country and taking over. And I'm afraid that we are going to just, again, learn the, the wrong lessons from what's going on here and A, make things worse and B, open up um, or and B, um, start digging in, whether it be in Europe or the Middle East or in Asia, because now there's this sort of idea that, oh, see, if we turn our back, you know, uh, the, the whole rules-based order is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Right. Well, yeah. I, I, and some of the, these uh, claims against realists and restrainers are, are, are pretty hard to take seriously, uh, if only because we, we, we have been the ones shouting from the rooftops for as long as I can remember, saying that trying to pull Ukraine towards the West to integrate it into Western institutions would provoke the Russians. Uh, maybe we, in, in my case, maybe I didn't take my own warning seriously enough, uh, just how provocative it was. Uh, but but it's clearly we were the ones saying that this was provoking the Russians, that the Russians were uh, extremely uh, angry about this, and, and certainly Russian leadership was extremely angry about this. Uh, and and you can't, you can't set up Ukraine to take a fall like we're doing 
uh, that you know it's wrong to encourage them to expect that one day they'll become part of NATO when we all know that they won't. Yeah. And indeed, indeed, many of the Atlantis' talks that are now improbably trying to take a victory lap, uh, and I'm not sure how, what victory there is to take a lap about, uh, these, same, these same hawks uh, are the ones that have discounted all of these warnings for years, uh, and they're the ones who used Ukraine's non-admission to NATO as some sort of talking point for their side, as though it was virtuous that we were le- misleading them into thinking that they had a chance to get in. Uh, and this this was the you know, supposedly sacred principle of the open door that we couldn't possibly compromise, even if it meant that Ukraine gets attacked. Uh, it's it's really uh, kind of galling to see people that have maintained that line uh, run around trying to somehow turn it around and, and say that the people that warned about the, the consequences of the policies they favored are the ones somehow to blame. And so it's, it's, that's really um, just a, a silly line of argument. And I, you know, I hope that, that, that people begin to realize just how silly it is. Our guest today is Sarah Leo Whitson. She is Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now. Previously, she served as Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division from 2004 to 2020. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and human rights. She has published widely on human rights and foreign policy in the Middle East in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Los Angeles Times and CNN. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Uh, we really appreciate having you on. Uh, thanks for making the time. Uh, we wanted to talk to you a bit about uh, U.S. policies in the Middle East, especially as it relates to Yemen. Uh, as we, we know, uh, coming up later this month, the Saudi coalition war on Yemen will hit its seven-year mark, uh, marking the, the beginning of the Saudi coalition intervention there. And unfortunately, U.S. policy remains unchanged for all intents and purposes. Uh, There is a new war powers challenge being organized in Congress, but there is much less attention being paid to Yemen and our government's role there than there was three years ago. Of course, other events are also uh, helping to overshadow that. Uh, What else besides a war powers challenge can Congress do to pressure the Biden administration to use U.S. leverage with Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Well, I don't really see it as a question of whether the U.S. should be using leverage with Saudi or the UAE. Um, I think this is a problem of the U.S.'s own uh, involvement in uh, a a, a grotesque war that has brought millions of Yemenis to the brink of starvation. Um, The first thing that obviously needs to happen is for the U.S. to stop its participation in the war. And the piece of this that's troubling and, and perhaps even confusing is This is what the Biden administration promised to the American people uh, because he knows that this is what the American people want. It it was a very, very rare display, even under the Trump administration, to have both houses of Congress, Republican, Democrat, uh, uh, agree that U.S. arms to Saudi Arabia and U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen uh, should stop. And that was what candidate uh, Biden campaigned on. Uh, So I think the pressure that needs to be put is for President Biden to keep his own promises. I think that 
we missed a valuable opportunity to do that in Congress uh, because the Biden administration sold new weapon sales to Saudi and UAE uh, as somehow being defensive weapons. Um, but uh, why uh, Congress and so many Democrats who previously voted against arms sales to Saudi Arabia for the war in Yemen agreed with that uh, is something that I don't think has been fully explored. Um, but I certainly don't think uh, are, are there are any uh, persuasive or, or, or positive answers for. Right. Um, speaking of the Biden administration's approach, uh, they've described uh, their dealings with client states in the region as going back to basics, their phrase. And that in practice means indulging U.S.-aligned dictators, selling them weapons, and ignoring their many crimes. Uh, most recently, uh, we've seen the UAE demanding that the U.S. designate the Houthis as terrorists following some drone and missile attacks on their territory. Uh, how concerned are you that the Biden administration will cave to UAE pressure? Well, they already have caved into UAE pressure because they already did designate uh, some sanctions uh, on so-called Houthi war financiers uh, without presenting a shred of evidence that I could find um, that actually links whatever trade these financiers have been engaging in uh, to weapons to the Houthis. In fact, I don't really believe that the Houthis are buying weapons uh, through international financial transactions using international financiers. Uh, and I really don't know how those weapons would get into the country, given the uh, total land, air and sea blockade. Nevertheless, uh, this is the Biden administration uh, trying to appease the Emiratis and the Saudis with these half measures, uh, knowing that uh, reimposing the full sanctions uh, on uh, the Houthis and the Houthi government would be a step too far, uh, given the Biden administration's own condemnation of these sanctions. Um, but the UAE won't just rely on the United States, and I'm sure is going to try to find other avenues uh, to push uh, for sanctions uh, uh, against the Houthis. Um, and it's really just showed the reality that they have not left the war in the UAE at all, uh, and uh, that they remain uh, not just engaged in conflict there, um, but in occupation there, in occupation of at least two islands in the country. Right, and they continue to wield influence through their proxies uh, in South Yemen as well. Uh, one of the other avenues that the UAE has been pursuing is by going through the UN, uh, and we saw that they opposed the resolution condemning the invasion of Ukraine by Russia as a way of buying Russian support for their own uh, agenda on a different resolution on Yemen. Uh, and the new resolution expands the arms embargo on the, uh, the Houthis, and it also uh, labels them as a terrorist group, which is unusual in UN uh, resolution language. Uh, do you think that the references to the Houthis as a terrorist group in that UN resolution will be used by the U.S. to justify a full uh, FTO designation? Uh, I mean, absolutely, it can be used to do that. Uh, um, let's see if that resolution actually passes. Uh, if anything, there's been a bit of a pause uh, given the Ukraine situation. And I think it's also very interesting to note um, that not only did the UAE uh, refused to support a UN Security Council resolution on Ukraine, uh, but refused to co-sponsor the General Assembly re resolution. Uh, now that vote in the General Assembly condemning the war in Ukraine has just come in. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel, Bahrain have all lined up uh, interestingly to support it. Um, but that's probably because it has really no teeth at all. Uh, where it counts and where it matters in the Security Council uh, is where our trusted partner, the UAE, has shown its true colors. 
where even uh, all of the support that the United States has been providing the UAE, putting American troops on the line, risking their lives to defend the UAE from Houthi missile attacks, none of that has mattered one bit for the UAE, uh, who is demonstrating, I think probably quite rationally, uh, that this is a mercantile transactional relationship with the United States. Uh, it is not a partnership, and it certainly isn't a trusted partnership. Uh, I think the one silver lining, unfortunately, of uh, this conflict in Ukraine is that it brought a great deal of clarity uh, as to who uh, is on the side of democracy and sovereignty and freedom and who is not, and the extent to which uh, the uh, so-called allies in the, United, uh, uh, in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Egypt, have been so grudging in offering any support uh, for the war against uh, 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 the for the war in in Ukraine against the war in Ukraine, uh, and have really uh, quite quite openly snubbed the United States, uh, despite billions and billions and billions of U.S. taxpayer gifts, uh, a, a massive uh, 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 damage to America's standing and credibility uh, to maintain um, those treacherous uh, relationships with autocratic governments. Uh, it's a moment of clarity right now to see what the true cost uh, has been of those relationships. Thanks, Aralia, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And you kind of answered my the question I was going to ask, and it was about uh, these Middle Eastern states uh, and autocracies, which they are, and how they've reacted so far to, to the invasion of Ukraine. Is this self-inflicted, though? Because here Biden is up on the stage at his State of the Union address this week, saying this is about good versus evil, democracies versus autocracies. And then we expect these states who we've cozied up to, um, who are clearly not democracies, to fall in line with that narrative. And it seems as though, why are we surprised when these aren't democracies in any sense of the world to begin with. Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Kelly. And here's the thing. Um, the Biden administration, the Trump administration, every administration before it have always thought that they could get away on the cheap, make their deals with the dictators, uh, prop up uh, these unaccountable uh, uh, governments, but then continue to preach uh, to the world about democracy and human rights. Um, and I think the Ukraine situation has really shown the true cost uh, of uh, America's support, America's enabling of a dictatorial abuse of apartheid governments uh, in the Middle East. It's not just about double standards and hypocrisy. This isn't, you know, just uh, some sort of uh, theoretical uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, purity test. Uh, this is about the way in which America's alliances with these governments, America's support for these governments, have undermined the very international norms and laws that we today, the United States and the West, is clinging to like a life raft uh, to win the battle uh, against uh, Russia. And guess what? Uh, these international norms and values they don't mean much uh, to the dictators and the abusers and the apartheid governments. Uh, and so, of course, uh, they are wobbling uh, in their support for us, or maybe they're willing to sell uh, their support for us uh, from some other trade-off. Uh, 
Um, but it is that erosion of international norms and values uh, that leads someone like Putin to say, you want me to follow the rules? You want me to uphold international norms and rules and laws about sovereignty and territorial integrity and not uh, uh, confiscating land by force? Uh, uh, hello, no. Uh, this is what shows the global danger, uh, not just to black and brown people who've been trampled on by the absence of international laws and norms uh, in the Middle East, but even to the blonde and blue eyed people who seem to have a lot more sympathy around the world. Guess what? They're also not safe. Guess what? Europe is also not safe if we cannot uphold these international laws and norms. This is the price tag of our support for lawlessness for tyranny uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, this is something that endangers the security of everyone around the world, not just the people over there. So we entered the, the Biden administration with this hope that the United States could finally start extricating from the Middle East and let these countries start taking responsibility for their own security. But now I'm sensing that the Biden administration sees great power politics behind every bush and hill and veil. And after what happened in Europe, I, I'm, and I don't know if you agree with this, do you think that we're going to start doubling down on our military posture in the Middle East as well as Europe and in Asia because we just have no uh, confidence that we we could possibly leave this region without being its security guarantor, and then and then this and a fear that somehow Russia or maybe China might be waiting in the wings to move in and take our place. You know, I have never bought the narrative that the United States is withdrawing or drawing down uh, or shifting its attention, pivoting Asia, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, away from the Middle East. I think that the facts uh, do not bear that out. Uh, U.S. troops in the Middle East and North Africa have increased. They've not decreased. Uh, U.S. support uh, in terms of arms sales, uh, in terms of arms gifts, uh, to the region, effectively to proxy governments or hoped for proxy governments that are unfortunately unreliable proxies, has increased, not decreased. If you add up every foreign military base in the world, in the Middle East, it does not add up to the number of American military bases in the Middle East. The U.S. is still present in Syria and fighting. The U.S. is still present in Iraq and fighting. And now, of course, the U.S. is fighting directly in the war uh, in Yemen from the UAE. So it's a bit of a myth. I think that the only issue around which there has been a, a notion of, well, you really need to sort this out and, and, and solve this yourselves, uh, has been tied to the Iran deal. And certainly, Certainly, uh, we have seen um, that when the United States did not protect Abqaiq uh, following the strike uh, uh, on the Saudi oil field, um, that that led to a very rapid rapprochement between Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, Iran, as well as the UAE and Iran. Um, and I think that it is definitely advantageous 
to everyone uh, for um, the, the countries in the region to reach a peaceful resolution and not uh, to do the opposite, um, which is to uh, find succor and find support from the presence of U.S. troops to take a very belligerent posture uh, in the region. That is what uh, uh, continues to be enabled uh, in Yemen. It has tamped down um, with Iran. Um, but I do think we will continue to see some realignment and reshuffling as the uh, 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 Israel plus Arab autocrat uh, axis uh, is really putting its, uh, its finger in the wind uh, to see how uh, an Iran deal pans out, how much pressure that le- relieves uh, on oil prices if Iran starts uh, uh, renews uh, its oil flow, uh, and to really just assess Uh, where it's going to uh, uh, place itself as. It may be that they decide uh, that they want a posture that unites them, but doesn't necessarily tether them uh, to the United States other than in a mercantile transactional way. Um, uh, I think that that really remains to be seen depending on the level of instability we see on the ground in the Middle East. Yeah. I just want to go back. Um, I, I, I'd feel bad if I didn't bring this up um, and have you address it before we run out of time. But just going back to the Yemen issue, are you surprised that Congress has seemed to be so flaccid on this issue under the Biden administration after, as you pointed out, have, have been successful in passing resolutions to get us out of that war? You know, I am and I'm not. Um, I am surprised in that uh, there were, I think, two or three uh, votes under the Trump administration to halt arms sales uh, uh, and end America's involvement uh, in the Yemen war. But sometimes I wonder whether that wasn't, at least in part, triggered by the murder of Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi Arabia, which I think on a very visceral emotional level uh, triggered a, a global human response. And you know the, the, the human beings in our Congress apparently still have a beating pulse. And I think that really motivated them and inspired them uh, to take a, tr- a stronger line. Uh, uh, the fact that they have now um, uh, been neutralized uh, by not uh, uh, blocking the arms sale uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, I think is tied, unfortunately, to what is uh, sadly the very parent corruption of our government, where the siren call of continued arms sales uh, is rewarded so handsomely, uh, not only to uh, members of Congress, uh, but to members of our own uh, State Department uh, and executive branch. Um, And I think that that with the distance of time from the Khashoggi murder, uh, with the distance of virtually no coverage of the war uh, in Yemen, uh, since journalists are virtually impossible to get in there. Uh, it became easier to be lulled by uh, the, 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 the drumbeat of lobbying from uh, the defense industry lobbyists who were literally caught on camera gloating about continued arms sales uh, uh, and renewed conflict uh, in Yemen, as well as the foreign government lobbyists themselves. Um, So I think that they have succeeded in uh, wearing down uh, whatever hide uh, members of Congress uh, may have built up uh, in response to the gruesome 
uh, uh, murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi. And, and, and of course, it was impossible to look away uh, uh, at that time. In, in referring to Jamal Khashoggi and his murder, I, I, I understand that your organization uh, is an outgrowth of that, that is an organization that had been started by Jamal um, and unfortunately not finished, that you have taken up the mantle. Can you tell us a little bit about Dawn and what you are hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. Um, so as, as you were pointing out, the organization was founded by Jamal, but unfortunately uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman murdered him um, before he could get Dawn in operation. Uh, and that was the intent, that was the goal. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we are, are parties to a lawsuit against Mohammed bin Salman uh, and his uh, fellow thugs, along with Khadija Jengiz, uh, his fiance, for the murder uh, of, of uh, Jamal. And that lawsuit is still pending. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why Mohammed bin Salman hasn't dared uh, show his head or show his face here uh, in America. Um, uh, the focus of Dawn, though, as, as a U.S.-based organization, is to change U.S. policy in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, that is where we think strategically we can have the most impact uh, because we are, after all, an American organization uh, headquartered in Washington. And that is where we have a moral responsibility uh, because whereas we can't fix everything that's wrong in the Middle East and undemocratic in the Middle East uh, and, and broken uh, with respect to human rights uh, in the Middle East, we can at the very least uh, end uh, our own government's uh, support for abusive apartheid governments uh, in the Middle East. That is something that is in the control of the American people or should be uh, and is, uh, uh, is something that the United States and every American is responsible for. Uh, and so that is why our focus is and all of the work that we do from the research, from the advocacy, from the think tankery, uh, from our publication, Democracy in Exile, which is purposely designed to give voice to political exiles from the Middle East, alongside experts who are committed to democracy and human rights in the Middle East. Um, that is the contribution we're trying to make uh, uh, for uh, democracy and human rights in the Middle East. Well, thank you so much. I know you have your, your work cut out for you, considering all of the foreign influence, the lobbying, uh, the military industrial complex in, in Washington. But if you can make, if you can eat at that uh, firmament just even a little bit, you'd probably be making a, making a lot of changes overseas. Um, and so I, I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about that and on talking about all these important issues and hope to hope to have you on again. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the work of Quincy, Vital Voice. Uh, 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 you know, just so, so happy to see the work you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.